Welcome to the Reinventing Education podcast. I'm Rob McLeod. Normally, I'm joined by my co-host, Brendan O'Leary. However, today we have a slightly different episode for you. I'm here solo, welcoming you, introducing you to an episode where we have an interview with Dr. David Labrie. If you've listened to us for any length of time, you've probably pieced together that I'm in Belgium, Brendan is in Japan. One challenge that this can present is whenever we want to speak to someone in North America, either myself, Brendan, or the person in North America should be in bed due to the conflicting difference in time zones. We drew straws in this interview, and Brendan was the one who got to interview David, and and it was the middle of the night when this interview happened, so I was not there. However, Brennan did invite his head of school, Dwayne Primo, to accompany them in the interview. So you'll hear Dwayne and Brennan interview Dr. David Labrie. Dr. David Labrie is a sociologically oriented historian at the Stanford Graduate School of Education. He seeks to explore some of the major processes and patterns that define the relationship between education and society. Many years earlier, he worked with trainee teachers at Michigan State University, and his publications and books include Someone Has to Fail and How to Succeed in School Without Really Trying. Enjoy this conversation with Dr. David Labrie, Brendan O'Leary, and Dwayne Primo. Personally, I found listening back to the recording of this incredible. Essentially, every sentence David Labrie speaks could be an episode unto itself. Um, This is a great chat. Enjoy. That was through them that I learned all about IB, and it's like it's really that's very cool. Yeah, congratulations. Thank you. It's it's an interesting kind of alternative path. One of the reasons I I tried to reach out to to yourself, um, there were there were a couple of reasons. The first was myself and Rob started talking. We got this idea that there, and it's a super simplified kind of idea of how societies work and. Uh, you know, 100 years ago, we are 200 years ago, the Prussian model and the one room schoolhouse came out and that's traditional schooling. And it's based on traditional values of security and nation building and citizenship and so on. And then fast forward 150 years later, we're now in this global capitalist competitive credentials market that's based on ideas of opportunity and the uh, interconnectedness of things. And we realize that we have a really simplistic understanding of that and societies are way more complex than that. And I I just wondered, it would be great to get the perspective of a a professor of education. Second thing is though, uh, like two or three of your papers just kept coming to me the one that you sent the one about public goods and uh kind of private gain is awesome and really in line with what we're thinking but also one about how john dewey lost and the kind of uh where that 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 time in the 30s where he had his moment and and it just didn't happen so those are some of the ideas i kind of wanted to touch on today i guess the first question the big one is like how did we get here I, what what's happened over that last 150 years to get us from that one room schoolhouse to where we are today? Yeah, it was a long trajectory, wasn't it? <laughs> a very long trajectory. Yeah, as you were pointing out, the if you look at where universal systems of public schooling came from, they came in the 19th century and they're basically or the late 
18th century. And they, they were basically aimed at nation building. This is how you constructed a nation state. You, how do you turn subjects of the crown into citizens of the of a country? And schooling is how you do that. It's how you create a, a sense of being part of a larger community. And so you need some sort of socializing institution that brings people together in a community and then stills in them a certain degree of common values, a certain allegiance to the state, a certain sense of belonging to something bigger than their little community, their little town. It's a, an effort to create this larger imagined community that we call a country that was created out of almost nothing. And schools were the magic to put all that together. So once an institution gets established, the initial function begins to fade away. It's like, okay, uh, like in the U.S. after the Civil War, the state was fully established. It was not going away. This was not a risk anymore. And so, okay, what are schools for? <laughs> and you start seeing them kind of drifting around looking for a mission. I mean, for one thing, you had them, they're set up all over the country. You got this massive infrastructure. You got a whole bunch of teachers and principals, and you've got this whole thing set up. Now, what are we going to do with it? <laughs> so a lot of the evolution over time is sort of shifting from one kind of a, an ideal to another. Um, and the, the one that seems to have taken hold in the recent years is this notion that schooling is, you know, it's basically a way of producing human capital. The political idea has gone away. It's now seen increasingly as an economic function. This is how you create skills, productivity. The more productivity there is, then the more the gross domestic product is going to expand and we will all benefit. Prosperity comes through schooling. So we started, instead of thinking of it as a political act or a sort of civic consciousness building, it now becomes an investment in the economy. And people use that language of investment heavily. Think about OECD that has, has been pushing this model for years. Uh, this is this is how a country grows and gets rich, and it's by investing in the skills of its citizens. I mean, for people like us who work in schools and think of this as more than just a machinery, that's a pretty grim vision. I don't know about you guys, but for me, it's like, do you get up in the morning and say, I'm going to create human capital today. That's, that gets me out of bed. That gets me pumped. That's, that's something I really want to do. I'm investing in the future growth of my country here. And no, no. I mean, we no. think that there's all this other stuff, right? You know, it's like, yeah. that's why you're teachers. You didn't go into it as engineers, economic engineers at all. Yeah, quite the opposite, of course. And that's where, even though we're in this very um, like mainstream credential, driven economic driven society now we've still got that complexity of, of ourselves leaning towards that security or leaning towards that opportunity and progress but also that kind of like leaning towards that self-actualization and what makes us special and different and that's right. creates a real problem in trying to engage students doesn't it like uh how do you engage students and, okay, you're investing in your future, future economic productivity here. And so we're going to be studying this topic today. And that's the reason you're doing it. It's like, no, that's nobody wants to go to school and think of, I'm going to be doing the next 16 years of my life 
investing in my productivity. It's like, I'm exploring. Can I explore? Some things are interesting. Gauge students and get them away from that mechanistic view. That's what's interesting about the the idea of the, the two types of social movement that you talk about. Well, yeah. So actually, that resounds with me a lot. So uh, I've got three degrees. My first degree was in biochemistry. And I did that because, you know, that credential, I'm like, I got to do it. I'm investing myself just trying to get ahead. And I didn't take any general courses. And then after I finished my first degree, I was like, what a waste. I'm like, I was just trying to run this up. I didn't get to take any history. I didn't get to do anything that was interesting. Yeah. So that's that's actually the reason I was a high school teacher. I became elementary because I felt that education was more about growing kids in the citizenship idea than uh, growing these kind of credentials. I guess my next question is, so that's where we were. Where are we not going to go in the 21st century? And what are the goals do you think are going to come out of that? I don't know. I mean, I think, you know, I'm a historian, not a futurist. So if you want me to make predictions, I'm not going to be doing that. But uh, futurists are quacks, basically. <laughs> They're inventing a future and they never held accountable for whether it happened or not. But it, it sells books. But what's going on is I think what's interesting about schooling is that it's got these tendencies that you two and I don't really like. We would much rather see this as a more holistic process of developing a person and their interests, their capabilities, their possibilities. And so they're not like Dwayne, they're not forced to say, okay, I'm going to be studying this subject because I, I can get a good paying job if I do that. And then once I do that, I said, was that, was that it? <laughs> <laughs> the rest of my life, I'm in this job and I had a chance to do all this other stuff and I didn't because I was trying to keep putting one foot in front of the other. So there's that tendency and it's hard to, you can't deny it. I mean, if you want to get a decent job these days, you need to get a good education and the more education you get, the better the payoff is going to be to you. And that's a reality you can't deny. Um, and that's the sort of driving force behind going to school. I mean, we compel kids to go to school, you know, by law, but we really don't have to because the job market forces them to go to school. You know, it's like, well, what else am I going to do? You know, I've, I've, I've got to do that or else I'm, I'll, I'll never be able to make a living. But the, uh, what's interesting about schools is that that very utilitarian, very economic thing is there. But these other things are also there too. And it's the tensions within school that I think keep the institution alive. And a lot of what happens with good teachers, I find, is that kids are coming into the class not because they necessarily want to learn what you're teaching. They sort of have to be there. This is, uh, tell me what I need to do to get the grade so I can get passed on to the next grade and get my degree and get a job. Uh, But Our job is to sort of lure them into the love of learning, almost against their better judgment. Get them like, isn't this fun? You know, Um, even though it might not be on the test, wouldn't you want to spend time on this anyway? And to me, that's the fun of teaching is to is to start dribbling out possibilities and throwing lures out into the classroom and finding something that people really get engaged in. And then getting them doing it in a way that they don't need you anymore. I mean, one of the cool things about being a teacher is you make yourself unnecessary if you do your job well. 
you don't need to keep coming back to your elementary teacher because you got launched well. And, you know, you have to go back to your lawyer and your doctor and your accountant every time you need something. But your teacher has gotten you in a way that you're now self-propelled and self-learning. And that's like, that's a kind of magic condition to me. It's like, what a neat thing to do to make yourself um, to just step out of the way and watch people roll on their own. Yeah. I mean, isn't that an amazing kind of satisfaction? <laughs> I, th I think within our school, which is, I guess, leaning more towards people might say some progressive kind of tendencies, but still is feeling that right. ten tension with having to exist in, in, in kind of the 21st century, that we have a lot of opportunities for that. And that's something that myself and Dwayne and, and the teaching team are really trying to bring in. You know, you said you, you're not really into the speculation of the future, and that clearly makes a lot of sense. It's a super complex system, and who knows what shaking one, one trio, one branch will do to the rest of the system. But do you think we could look back over the last 100 years and there's a path not taken or some things we can learn that maybe we've moved away from that we could bring back into what we do to, to kind of maybe get it a, a, a better balance? Yeah, and I think part of it is to get a sense of the dynamics of this institution that we're part of. Schools drive reformers crazy because they seem to be quite resilient in the face of efforts to change them. And I think part of the reason is that they're, they're serving a lot of functions for a lot of people out there. And the genius of the school is balancing its contradictory aims and giving enough to a whole bunch of different constituencies out there to make it indispensable for everybody, even if it's not ideal for anybody. And so I think playing with those tensions is useful. And I think back when I was teaching future teachers, uh, I was in the teacher education department at Michigan State University. So most of my students were planning to become teachers. So I'm trying to think, how do you prepare people to enter into an institution like this? And part of it is by understanding how it works. And part of it is also knowing that there are dynamics there that you can use to your advantage. And so I came up with a kind of scheme of thinking about alternative goals for schooling that are embedded in it. I came up with three. I call one democratic equality, which is really preparing people to be citizens in this larger society. It's a thinking of schooling as uh, an investment in the larger community and shaping uh, an ability for people to get along and be able to be self-governing. Another is social efficiency, which is looking more about getting a good job and preparing people to be in the economy and to be productive. You can't you need to have people with good skills and good capacities in order for, for an economy to run. Um, it's not just a political structure, it's also an economic one, but it's also a place where individuals are looking to make their way. It's, you know, the way to get ahead. It's uh, how, how do you get ahead? You get ahead by going through schooling. So it's been a major zone of opportunity, um, but it's also at the same time, and this is where the contradictions keep coming in. It's also the zone where you, it's also the way in which you preserve the advantage you already have. So you've got this crazy institution that's serving the public good by promoting citizenship and by uh, expanding economic, uh, um, you know, uh, uh, growth. 
but it's also this place that's providing individuals with a way to get ahead or stay ahead. And it's like doing all of those things at the same time. But I think for a teacher that's useful and for others, uh, other parents in approaching schools is to say, these tendencies are all there in the institution. And if your place is pushing one of them too hard, like it's all about getting into the right college, you know, which is an obsession, especially uh, with secondary educators. I mean, Dwayne, it's probably what drove you back into elementary schooling was to get away from this pressure to get everybody into the fancy university somewhere. It's like it's like the only things parents seem to care about because and of course it matters. It matters about their future possibilities. But it's good to know that there are these other things that people also care about. You know, they care about it's not just about getting a fancy degree, but you also need to know something. You actually need to have some skills. You, you actually need to learn stuff. If it's all about just getting into the right college, then learning doesn't matter very much. It's more just about getting the right grades and getting promoted and getting the right degrees. And if you can do that without learning very much, you're just a smart uh, customer. That's all. It's a consumer good and you're trying to buy it cheap. Um, but you also, there's a sense that, but no, I mean, when I'm on the job, I need stuff. I need stuff. And people hire me, they want me to be able to do stuff. It's not just about having a fancy degree. And it's also people recognize that, you know, uh, I really need, I, I want to live in a country where other people's children are educated as well as I am. Uh, it's not just about me getting ahead, but there's a, there's a rationale for why other children need need this too. And that I want to be in a place where there's opportunity for other people. I want to be in a place where it's peaceful and crime is low. I want to be in a society where people tend to be able to get along with each other. Uh, and that's not just about me enhancing my human capital. And so that means that there are, values built into the institution that you can plug into and use to push back against things that you think are distorting education or moving it away from learning and just toward credentialing or making it purely economic and ignoring these other elements that are important. And I think that can be a way to deal with it within understanding its own internal workings and allowing you to feel like you there are levers you can push. There are cultural touchstones that you can, when you, it's going to resonate with people. They're going to say, oh, yeah, actually, yeah, it's not all about just getting into the right school. And that's, that can be empowering for parents, for students, for administrators, for teachers. So is it almost pulling it back to the political and making that, that balance more apparent? Yeah, yeah, and it's like in some ways I started thinking that it's not about optimizing any one of those goals. It's about not letting them get totally out of balance. Uh, mm. I mean, it's oh, you are gonna, you have to care about the education you get for yourself, and you want to be have good opportunities. So it's not it's not being a bad citizen to be trying to get the best educational opportunities you can for yourself or your children. But you also 
don't want that to come at the expense of everybody else's children. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so that it's like it just it's a zero sum game. It's me versus you, and if I get it, you don't, and vice versa. So it, it's good to have the ability to sort of back off and say, no, actually, I don't want to live in a world where it's everybody out just for him or herself. Uh, that schooling is just about picking winners and losers and that there's nothing else going on there. That's a pretty grim prospect for a society that you're entering into. Well, I was just kind of thinking about that. So we talked about that credentialing and then you talk about that holistic education. So at what point do you think that some of these are middle class that are getting into this, where do they jump over to that progressive education, like private schools like we have? like in the IB program, and they start focusing more on that citizenship and uh, caring about individuals. I mean, what's interesting about IB is that, and I think it's one of its strengths, is that it can go both ways. It's You can get a really rich curriculum where you're not just plowing ahead, doing things by rote, but you're really engaged in a kind of rich learning process and a, a, a experience that's educationally stimulating. But at the same time, you're getting a degree that's going to open doors for you. Having an IB diploma is uh, an attractive thing when you're applying to a college and other kinds of places. So it you can do good and do well at the same time that way. You can get a rich educational experience, uh, but it's also going, it, it's not going to hurt you in the job market. Let's put it that way. And that's finding win-win situations like that in education is really key, I think. If it's all like this is at the expense of something else I really care about, then it's a problem. But if you can find forms of schooling that are rich intellectually and personally, but are also uh, serving these practical ends that people necessarily have to care about, that's great. That's great. Yeah, and I, I guess what you've touched on a couple of times there as well is how school is kind of removed from life and a thing yeah. in and of itself. Uh, when you're working with your students in the past and teacher trainee teachers and so on, how would you or help them to connect school and that meaning into life more? I know it's a problem that teachers have, and sometimes they find themselves resorting to things that they kind of feel sleazy about, like, you're going to need to know this someday, you know? Listen up. <laughs> it's like, well, maybe, you know, maybe, but actually the sort of direct connection between a particular subject you're teaching in class and some future work role or other role you're going to play, is it's pretty indirect. Uh, the sort of the most pragmatic occupational learning you're probably going to do is going to be on the job, not in school. And so the, that's a little... It's a little out there. Uh, I mean, so you're trying, the issue is trying to get people to find that they can, as a student, you can actually have a rich learning experience and get the kind of payoff that you need at the same time. And that that's not a one or the other. You either are in it for the pleasure or you're in it for the practicality. No, you can kind of, you can pull these pieces together. And that's, that can be a magic experience when it works. 
But I guess, David, if, um, one of the, I read one of your pieces about why uh, the uh, history of education matters and why we need uh, historians in education. Um, yeah, what would you say to somebody who says like, yeah, we're just moving forward or plowing ahead, there's nothing to learn from the past. What is the role of, of a historian in education? Yeah, I think, I find, you know, when you're a teacher, you have to figure out what's my, how do I justify my existence? <laughs> what do I do that these students can benefit from that maybe they're not getting from other people? You know, it's like, what's my contribution to this larger piece? And I started thinking over time that my contribution was uh, to get people to start thinking that before I want to in, engage in changing schools, I need to understand them. You know, I, the course that would, to me was the key one that, uh, that sort of framed my thinking was I was teaching a course about the history of school reform. And what's interesting about school reform is that it's a set of, you can think of it as a set of experiments um, where people try to poke and prod us a very complex system and history shows you what happened and what happens shows you how the system works how does it respond when you poke it this way um, why is it that when you try to move it in this direction it seems to resist and some other ways it seems to be willing to adapt um, and so i'm trying to get people to say before you fix it understand it because otherwise you'll do as a lot of reformers have done over the years and, and is make things worse. You zero in on one issue. I want to zero, I want to focus on this issue and I plow straight ahead on that. And then all the side effects, all the unintended consequences pile up and create problems that another reformer has to come in and fix. So it's like partly it's develop a little humility. Like maybe I don't know enough yet to try to, totally transform the system. Maybe I need to learn more. And also maybe I need to move a little slower instead of trying to do what some education minister does coming into office. You know, it's like, I only, I'm going to be here only for maybe four or five years. I got to plow straight ahead and I got to go to scale immediately. Uh, and I got to have an impact and you may have an impact, but it may really, it's likely not to be the impact you wanted. And it's likely to be an impact that may be educationally dysfunctional. And so slow down, do things a little, be careful, start at the local level, listen to teachers, listen to what's happening in the radically decentralized structure of schooling and recognize that one thing coming from the capital city is not going to work in every classroom. And maybe we need to do things that have built into them a kind of sense that they're going to get hybridized, you know, that here's some general ideas, but let's let the school and the classroom adapt it to the circumstances right there. And to say, instead of trying to impose a standard model, recognize that this is something that's in the hands of thousands of schools and classrooms out there with the real meet at education takes place and that maybe they know more about those kids than you do. And maybe we should trust them a little bit to uh, figure out how much of this that I'm suggesting they should really put in place and what they should 
adapt because it doesn't, it wouldn't work here. I mean, that's, I think that's, that's powerful. It's not something that reformers want to hear because that's, you know, a reformer that doesn't ram through your reform is somebody that doesn't feel like a reformer at all. But to me, that's how positive change happens. It happens if it's more evolutionary and if it's more decentralized uh, and if it puts a little more trust in the people on the ground and not assume that all the brains exist in the superintendent's office. That, that's really interesting because I was just connecting, you know, you talked about the politics and, and to do that, I'm guessing that we'd have to decouple education from politics because, you know, the politics are changing every, depends on your country, four years when there's an election, right? Yeah. So, so how do we do that where we can have systems that say this is where we want to go, but take that away from the politics because it's, that's, that evolution is not going to happen in four years. That's going to be 10, 20 years down the road and making those small changes. I know, and it's a difficult process, and I understand the complexity because um, this is a political institution more than it is, let's say, a technical institution. This isn't engineering. It's more of a kind of, it's, it's an extension of democratic politics. But the problem is that the political pressures can be very, can be destructive if they come only from the center and then push down to the periphery. I think it's a matter of thinking this, that we're not pushing politics out, but we are maybe pushing the politics down to the lower levels. And uh, we want local citizens to be engaged in what's going on in their schools, and we don't want schools to completely ignore what the citizens want. I mean, they're paying for it. They're hiring the teachers. They're electing the school boards. Or, that this is, um, this is an institution that is theirs as much as anyone else's. The teachers don't own schooling. They are the primary practitioners within it uh, and whose views and expertise needs to be honored. But they also can't simply say that the parents keep out of this. I'm the educator. You know, uh, you wouldn't understand this. I, I, I know how this works. That's the way professions in general tend to do it. You know, I'm the doctor. I write the prescriptions. I'll, I'll tell you how this is going to go. Um, you know, the, the lawyer doesn't want you to talk in court. I'll talk for you. You know, this is like, this is my domain. This, you, you're, you're a rookie here. And schooling is a little different than that. And it's always been one of the problems that teachers have because Teaching doesn't seem to have the same elevated professional status that doctoring and lawyering do. And in part, it's because it seems to be pretty familiar. It's like everybody's observed it up close. A lot of people think, hey, I could be a teacher. You know, I can give out tests. I can, I, I can make pronouncements to a class. You know, I, I can grade people. It's like, what's the big deal here? It's like it's advanced childcare. You know, so that's always been an issue. Uh, but it's, there's a certain element that's true, and that is that the teacher is not the technical expert intervening here. You're working, you have a certain expertise, but you're necessarily working in a partnership with a community. And the parents 
uh, and the local political structure too. And that's a that's a delicate place to be. It's it's hard. Really, it's much harder to be a teacher than to be a doctor and a lawyer because you you don't have the same clarity, you don't have the same respect, and it's not even clear like who's your client. Is it the student? Well, not really. The student didn't come to you and say, hi, I want you to teach me first grade. I'm hiring you to do this. No. Uh, is it the parents? Uh, sort of. Uh, is it the larger community? Well, yeah. I mean, you've got like multiple clients that you have to keep happy. And that's, that's a tough space to be in. But it's also you know, an incredibly important space. And the best teachers seem to be able to negotiate that sense that I don't have total control here, but I think I know what I can do. Uh, um, I'm trying to do things that are in the best interest of the student and following my own understanding of what should be done here. But I can't simply tell other people to shut up and keep out of my way because this is my my business not yours it is their business you know i mean the romantic the romantic history of the past is that the school emerged from that community nature I, i'm not sure how, how accurate <laughs> true that is maybe you can attest to that but um i guess on that you talked about trust a lot you've said that word a lot and so do you think like the populace uh, would make decisions to move away from credentialism and into more student-led, child-led, inquiry-based, or um, I guess what you might call progressive leaning. If, if uh, have they been duped in a way, or have they been kind of like suckered into this kind of like credential system, the capitalist kind of worldview, at, at the um, at, a, at a kind of loss to their own progress as a community and as individuals. Yeah, and I think it's. I mean, that's kind of what's in the air. Uh, and it's often the case that, you know, when you are compared to things, what was the schooling I would like and what is the schooling I think I need? They may not be the same thing. And so there's a certain tendency to say, yeah, I know it's boring. I know a lot of it's drudgery. I know you just have to do what you're told. Uh, but it's going to pay off. You just, you, you got to do it. And there's a certain sense that that's true. You do kind of have to do it. Um, but, you know, the key is to that that's not, you can't have it both ways. You know, you can have a rich experience and one that really pays off. You can have one that feels personally fulfilling and not just, I'm doing a job, I'm engaged and alienated intellectual labor here, just doing what my teacher tells me to do. And if I keep doing that, I'll end up on a good job. You can, you can do it both ways, but in some ways, the, the machinery of necessity seems to push out the machinery of the possibility of pleasure and enrichment as though they're, they're incompatible, you know, be serious. It's a school, you know, this isn't fun. It's like, it's, it's a job. Do your job. And like any job, you'll get the check, the benefits. It'll be worth it. Um, and that's kind of the thing that you and the kind of school that you're involved in are, are pushing back against that, saying, no, actually, this, the combination is there. It's real. Uh, you can 
have what you'd like and what you want, pieces of what you want and what you need at the same time. And if that's, uh, it's not, you don't have to accept that machinery model. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's where the kind of kind of model we've tried to base the uh, our podcast on is like, yeah, there is a security traditionalist mindset. And then you can plug into this kind of um, opportunistic, for better or worse, kind of mindset. And then there is a there is a, a more progressive leaning mindset that says it is about the actualization of yourself. And there's kind of an uneasy balance playing out. And I guess your model suggests that it is the one that's pushing that social mobility or the, that kind of thing that's winning out right, right now. Can um, I give you an example? It's a, I had a doctoral student, Erin Robb, who uh, did a really interesting dissertation. She ended up starting an organization called Re-Envision Ed. Uh, sounds like your yes. <laughs> in many ways. And one of the things she did that I found really interesting, and that is she, she would go in and engage all of the stakeholders in a conversation about what do you want schooling to be? And when you start getting, say, parents talking about this, yeah, they want their kids to get a good job. They also want something that is not going to be drudgery. They want to have, when they said, how was school today, to have your child say something enthusiastic about it instead of said, well, you know, I got an A. But uh, And teachers and students, administrators, you ask them all and you start – you, you move past the initial reaction and you start finding that everybody, all the stakeholders have a much richer sense of what they would like to see in schooling than what they actually encounter. And then you can start saying, well, how much of that is actually going on in your school? And how can it be possible to make more of that go on in your school without disrupting these other things that you also care about? And what's defined is that there's actually there's actually a lot more room for possibility when you do that than if you just treat this as like as all or nothing. You know, let's be practical. You got to get you got to go through this. You got to get the degree and do whatever it takes to do that. But it's really when people start talking about it and thinking about it, they realize, no, all of these actors want something different than what they're actually engaged in. Well, that seems like a, pos a zone of possibility, you know, that if nobody necessarily wants it to stay exactly the way it is, then maybe there are ways of moving. That's right. That's a very hopeful view. And that's in line with kind of our, I think, my, myself and Dwayne's kind of philosophy and, and, and um, the philosophy here on the podcast that it's like building that community, talking to people. And, and that gets back into what you're saying, that the change would come from within the community as well. So just building yeah. those relationships and talking to people is is the way to, to strengthen and actually put that those decision making back into your kind of arena, I guess. And sometimes when you find schools that really seem to work well, you find that they often have a closer connection with the community and with the parents, that it's not just sitting off here doing its thing apart from everybody else, but that where there's a, something more of an integrated sense about what we're trying to do here. I mean, interestingly, private schools have sometimes been more capable of doing that 
and they may see a vision there that they want their children to pursue. If you're talking about, you know, the classic um, public school, that just it's a little, it's more complicated to try to create that sense of ownership and find in a number of the private or religious schools where there seems to be a little more of a sense of ownership, a little more sense of a kind of social capital that's pulling together around that the parents, the community, and the teachers are seem to have some things in, together that they're looking for here. That can be a powerful thing. It's harder when there's a sense that like people are all over the place and then the school feels isolated. It's like, well, we just have to keep plowing ahead here and hope we're doing the right thing, but not necessarily in a way that's drawing the larger set of stakeholders together. You talked about not being able to read to see the future, right? And, and as yeah. educators, we're always trying to set up systems that will prepare our children for the future. And, yeah. you know, what is what can we do now working in the system we have to prepare the kids, I guess, those social skills and everything. But what can we do in, at the university setting to prepare our teachers to prepare these kids? Yeah, and that's one of the strengths that progressive education has had over the years is that it's it's saying what we're not we're not just teaching the curriculum. You know, we're not just cranking it out here. We're teaching people how to learn how to learn and then to be able to continue that learning on their own as they move out of our classrooms. And that that's, you know, that's a much more powerful way than saying, because you're preparing people that way for a future that is unknown because you're saying, well, whatever you run into, you're going to be able to figure it out and you'll be able to figure out how to learn what you need to do in order to do that. I mean, that's been one of the classic arguments in favor of a liberal education as opposed to a narrow vocational education is that the problem with vocational education in public schools over the years is that they usually train people for yesterday's job. You know, by the time you graduate, the job has already evolved into something else. And so all that skill training is kind of wasted. But if you if you're giving people a broad set of capabilities, ways of thinking, ways of communicating, ways of calculating, ways of problem solving, then they can apply that in a lot of settings that are settings that you can't imagine right now. I mean, you're trying to prepare people for future jobs and future society that you don't know where that's going. And so what you need to do is build up a set of capacities that's gonna allow them to adapt. And that's a, often a very different kind of schooling than what we often are finding ourselves doing, where we're just saying, I got to get through the book. I got to finish this curriculum by the end of the semester. And, you know, completion of the task is that I got, I got to the end. Uh, but you're ignoring the fact that that curriculum itself is a means towards some end. And the... Uh, the issue is how are you going to be able to use it? How are you going to be able to treat it as a sort of general set of capacities for future growth and, and learning rather than saying that by the time I finish school, I know everything I'm ever going to need to know 
in order to function in society. And sometimes, sometimes it seems like we're pairing people for that, that case, which is never true. Instead of like the, we're preparing them to be able to figure it out and have a certain degree of competence and a certain degree of even self-confidence that uh, I'll be able to, I can figure it out. I can learn. I can go to a library. I can read a book. I can um, get a short course somewhere. I can, uh, I can move ahead. And so I'm not done learning when I get out of school, but in some ways we seem like we're thinking about the fact that we have to give people everything they need. Yeah, I, I, I guess just moving from understanding into applying kind of, you know, yeah. traditionally we were, we were about remembering, maybe understanding uh, and maybe moving now more into an application of that and transfer. Uh, maybe we have just a few minutes left. I wanted to ask a couple more questions. We've been pretty harsh on the system as it stands right now. What are the strengths of the of the system as it as it currently stands? I mean, I ended up a few years ago. I wrote a book called uh, "Someone Has to Fail," which was actually the book I wrote after teaching that school reform class for many years. And I was trying to say, what did I learn from that? And that's when I realized that what I was teaching about in that course was not school reform. I was teaching about how the system works and that school reform is just the window into it. It's a series of experiments that in some show you the dynamics of the institution. And so at the end of that, I found myself thinking that uh, I developed a surprising degree of respect for the system. I mean, a system that can meet so many contradictory goals within its own institutional structure without simply exploding in the, in the face of contradictions, how it can help some people get ahead and other people stay ahead. It can promote opportunity and it can also preserve privilege. It can do all of these things. That's a pretty remarkable institution. Um, and one of the things you recognize is that there's embedded within it are a lot of possibilities that can we can draw upon without having to trash the system and start from scratch, burn it to the ground and build it up again. And it's, it's doing a lot of things for a lot of people. Uh, and it's one of the reasons that when you try to change schools, you find resistance coming from all over because, oh, whoa, 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 wait. I mean, you think about education. Uh, 200, 150 years ago, it was tiny. It was peripheral. It was poor. And now it's like it's, it sucks up in the U.S. It sucks up basically a third of all public funds go into schooling. That's pretty big. It occupies, I mean, I spent 23 years in school. That's a long time. I mean, people spend a huge chunk of their days. It employs millions of people. It's like this, this is like one of the most successful institutions in the history of the world came out of nowhere. And now it rules. I mean, just think about families, their entire life revolves around the school schedule. Is it summertime or not? When is spring break? Oh, I got to take my kid to uh, football practice. It's like this, it's, it governs our lives in so many ways. It's, and it's, it's serving a lot of purposes, <laughs> you know, it's like, uh, give it some credit. 
it's growing, it's a survivor, and it's got a massive constituency behind it. So let's um, spend a little more time figuring out how it works and then figure out how to work the levers within it in order to draw on its own capacities to turn it in directions that you might prefer to see it go. Yeah, well, thanks very much. I mean, I think a lot of what you said there was really hopeful and positive for us integrating education into our community and taking it forward, even though some aspects of the system right now maybe aren't working uh, for all of us. Um, so thanks very much for that, David. Um, that was a great It's a pleasure. Yeah, Brendan, Dwayne, this has really been, it's fun to talk to fellow educators halfway around the world. <laughs> That's been, that was very nice. And uh, keep up the good work. Yeah, thank you. It's been inspiring, actually. I do a lot of reflection while I'm reading. So I was, I was actually really thinking about my education when I was uh, listening to you. And when I read a couple of your papers, I'm like, oh, wow, things that I didn't think about. I'm like, okay, that's why it is. And I've kind of bought into the system in this way. Yeah, it's good. Thank you. Thanks very well, much, Thank David. you so much. I appreciate it. Thank you for inviting me.